How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In context. Welcome back to Michael Easley in Context. Last week, we began a new series called A Living Hope in Hopeless Times, and we're listening to an expository teaching series on 1 Peter. In this episode, Michael teaches from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Now, in coming weeks, we will also be releasing special edition interviews that coincide with the theme of 1 Peter. These will be stories of men and women just like you and me, who have faced immense trials and tribulations, but through it all have held fast to the living hope that we have in Jesus Christ. God has used them and their story in extraordinary ways amidst their suffering. So I hope you'll keep your eyes peeled and listen to those interviews as they are released. But now let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. After Mount Sinai, everything had changed. Uh, Israelites had heard from God. They had heard the word from God. And there's this whole covenant we're going to look at where they're going to say, everything you say we're going to do. And Peter's going to hedge that into this little text just to give you a lead where he's going. He's talking about you're being chosen, but there are three prepositional phrases we're going to look at that then tie all the way back to Mount Sinai. Let me see if I can sew that together in a way that makes sense. Number one, understand your elect. Number two, understand you were chosen not by something you did, but what he did. And then there are three prepositional phrases I want you to see in verse two. According to the foreknowledge of God, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey. Your English version might be a bit different. According, by, and to. These prepositional phrases stand out like like flares when you read through this carefully. So let's look at them briefly, one at a time, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Foreknowledge is probably one of the most misunderstood uh, ideas in theology, how someone is chosen by God. And I can't remember how many times I've had a conversation with someone, well, God looked down the annals of time, and he said, oh, Carrie, Carrie's going to trust Christ in March 27, 1968. I'll choose him. You ever heard it defined that way? God looked down time, and he saw a person respond by faith. Oh, I'm going to choose that person. Well, not only is that really bad theology, it's not for ordination. That would mean that your choice to choose God predicated his response. Make sense? So for ordination does not mean he looked down and said, oh, one day uh, you'll walk the aisle, pray the prayer, you'll meet Christ, you'll meet God, you'll have an encounter. And so now you're mine. That puts the power in, in, in man's hand. Uh, foreknowledge is this complex work of God choosing. The word is prognosis. We bring it into English and it means different things. Prognosis is understood in the New Testament as God's favorable regard, his plan, and his purpose. Period. God's favorable regard. He looked upon you 
And not to sound pretentious, because I had nothing to do with it. He looked upon me. And he said, I choose you. His foreknowledge, he looked ahead, not based on what I was going to do. And we're going to see some parallel passages before the foundation of time. So he's, let's say he's outside of time when he makes these elections, these selections, these foreordinations. This is all tying back to these exiled strangers and aliens that God looks at and says, I choose you. And then Peter explains it with these three prepositional phrases, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So it's not based on your goodness or someone else's humanity or someone else who, they're going to grow up and be a really good person. And we know if we've been around believers that not all believers grow up to be really good people, right? Uh, So that should prove positive that he chose some of us reasons we'll never comprehend. 1 Peter 1 verse 20, if you look down in your Bible, notice again how Peter uses the same word. He was foreknown. He's talking about Christ here. Peter says Christ was foreknown, prognoskos, known beforehand, chosen beforehand, before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. It's fascinating to think about eternity past. When the Trinitarian God had existed and there was a tohu vabohu, a darkness and void, before God interrupts the thing and separates light from darkness and begins the created order. They existed in eternity past. It's the stuff of science fiction. How do we even begin to comprehend that? And Peter is saying, for he, referring to Jesus, was foreknown. So he's pre-eternally existing, and God the Father chose him in that pre-eternal state for a purpose. So not only is it mind-bending that you were chosen, that I was chosen, that any person who knows Christ is chosen, but that even Jesus is chosen for a purpose. Also, turn over to Acts 2 for just a moment. Acts 2, verse 23. I want you to get a feel for how this word prognosis, prognosis is used in your New Testament. Acts 2.23. This is Peter preaching this message, which folds very well into looking at his letter. This man, chapter 2, Acts 23, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge, prognosis of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. God's predetermined plan was to use a human agency, uh, which involved a number of layers of Jews, of rebels, of people that were bribed and paid to lie about the Christ, the mob mentality with Pontius Pilate, crucify him, crucify him. Uh, Those hands were predetermined. This gets pretty crazy. God predetermined this was going to be the truth. And Peter is the one telling that story in the sermon he preaches in Acts chapter 2. This man that you delivered by the predetermined and foreknowledge of God. So when we scratch our head about, well, why does he choose some and does not choose others, which is the wrong question. It's non sequitur. There's no, no reason asking that question. But that's where our human rationale goes. Let's step back further and go, he chose his son for the hands of murderous, lying, deceptive political religious powers to kill him because that was the only plan that provided redemption. So that helps me somewhat to say, okay, if that's how God 
provides redemption by choosing his son before the foundation of the world to die in my place on my behalf and instead of me, it begins to fill in some of these tensions and blanks where I don't know why he chose me. I'm sure glad he did. I don't know why he chose you, but I bet you're glad he did. And that's the wonder of this doctrine. The last one I want you to look at is in Romans 8.29. Most people know 8.28, but some perhaps haven't looked at 8.29 and 30, teaching the same kinds of doctrines. This is coming from Paul's pen, Romans 8.29. For those whom he foreknew, prognosis again, predetermined, foreordained, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now this word is it's similar to, but it's a little different than the word foreknowledge. Predestined here is prorizo. I'll talk about it in a moment. It's the idea of, of a destination that's already determined. The first one is this favorable regard God has that we don't know why. It's his plan. He chooses to do it. He predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among the brethren. And these whom he predestined, same word, perizo, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What part does man play? Nothing. Nothing. So Paul takes the theology a little deeper and if you look at your Bible, I don't know if you take notes in your Bible, if you still use a, a book that you write in or not, it's your choice. But I have the divine pronoun, he, circled every time in this text. He foreknew, he predestined, his son, he predestined, he called, he called, he justified, he justified, he glorified. It's all his action. We're the recipients of something that's mind-boggling that he's chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Three prepositional phrases that expand this idea of what it means that we are these estranged, uh, alien refugees, uh, uh, whatever you want to call it, peculiar people that are not in our home, you're elect. And then the three prepositional phrases, according to the foreknowledge of God. The second one, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Same verse 2. The Holy Spirit's work sets us apart. The Holy Spirit's work is complex. The Holy Spirit works in and among us, yet there is some consent of the human will to the Holy Spirit. And I can't explain that any better. The Holy Spirit draws, calls, leads, guides, instructs, corrects, confirms, convicts, all kinds of things the Holy Spirit does. I want you to turn over to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, which I think are the simplest way to see what this sanctifying work is about. There's lots of ways you can study sanctification. But to be transformed into something we're not is the work of God's Spirit in our lives, not just human flesh, but somehow the human will has to uh, cooperate. Romans chapter 12, most of us know this verse really well. Therefore, I urge you, brethren... By the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. 
And again, some of you have heard me use this story before, but it, it helps me. My mother had one of these um, copper fish things, kind of a bubbly looking thing, and it hung on a wall. You know what I'm talking about? And, um, and it was a jello mold, okay? And she would make these pistachio jello concoctions and put, you know, fruit cocktail, whatever, and put it in that fish mold. And then when it was ready, you put a little warm water on it and it comes out on the dish, right? And then you put a little dollop of mayonnaise on it. My wife hates the word dollop, so I say it all the time. Dollop, dollop, dollop. <laughs> she hates that word. Um, but no matter what you put in that, that jello mold, the color may be different, but it, what, it always looked like that dumb fish. The calf hoofs congealed in a gelatin, and you got this thing, okay? That's being molded. Transformed is something that happens internally. So don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, some have said. The idea is we're, we're in a culture, and this, this is my personal dilemma as a Christian. I think I look too much like the culture more and more and more and more. It, this, this really does keep me awake sometimes. I go, am I any different than the people around me? Would anybody know that I'm different? And in the South, we're all nice. In the South, everybody says, God bless you when you sneeze. And in the South, everyone calls you hun and sugar and pats you on the back when you're at the restaurant and you're a nice person. Are we any different than the culture? So the idea is to be transformed, and Paul says it very eloquently by the renewing of your mind. And three times in that passage, he's going to talk about thinking differently. Think no, as not the way you used to think, think the way you ought to think. I find the cultural shifts and trends always have, they have like a decade to them in Christianity. And there's a lot of movement about heart and soul and mind and passion and vision. These things all swirl around. The text talks about changing your mindset. It's very clear. Renewing your mind. Because as a man thinketh, so he is. Not as a man feeleth. Because our feelings change. Now we have to think on the right things. We have to focus on the right information. We have to have the right renewing. But transformation is something the work of God does. Yes, we have to cooperate with it. Um, if you know about a differential on a car, and cars, of course, have changed quite a bit, but uh, differentials used to have what's called Positrack on the rear of the rear drive car. And the way a differential works, if it's a, a rear wheel car, when you're going on the road and you turn, uh, the inside wheel is going to turn slower or faster than the outside wheel? Slower. And the outside wheel is going to turn faster. And if you're going the other way, the opposite. That's the differential. So walking in the Spirit, being transformed in my mind, it's a good picture of, am I going down the road the same speed as the Holy Spirit's working in my life? Is there a sense in which I can slow things down? I would argue yes. If I'm living in sin, if I'm resistant, if I'm rebellious... If I'm apathetic, if I just don't care, if I'm not engaged in God's word, God's spirit, God's people, if I'm doing it solo on my own, going my own way, I don't have people around me that will tell me the truth, I can slow things down. Does that mean the Holy Spirit's no longer working? No. But I do think our sin and our apathy can affect our sanctification. On the, other, on the transverse part of this, I don't think we can hurry up our sanctification. We can get real busy being spiritual. I don't think that makes us more sanctified more quickly. Sanctification is, is sort of like the 30-year stock market. It generally goes up. Not always. Because we do have lulls. We have times we're apathetic, times we're callous, times we're filling in the blank. 
But sanctification is a process. The simplest way for me to ask it of myself, and perhaps you as well, is are you any more like Jesus than you were last year? Is your impatience level with people any better than it was the last meeting you were in? Is your compassion index for people that make really poor choices grown? Are you kind when maybe, if you're like me, you can be a critical spirit and real quick to point out what's wrong? Is that softening? Not just because we're getting old and addled, but is it softening a little bit because I'm a little more like Jesus would want me to be? Or conversely, am I willing to speak up and say something? Or maybe that's not my nature. And if it's wrong, I need to say, you know, this might be wrong in a kind way. Are you any more like Christ than you were two years ago, three years ago, five years ago? And if you don't ask that question, no, no one can measure it. If you ask that question and you don't have an answer, that's a good wake-up question. We are to be transformed in the image of Christ. And back to Peter's theology here, you were chosen for no good reason. You were a stranger you're a resident alien, and he chose you. And now Peter, I'm arguing, is explaining that with these three phrases. According to the foreknowledge of God, sanctifying by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. The complex work of the Holy Spirit, somehow man, woman, somehow our will consents to what God is doing. We respond by faith. And then this last one, to obey Jesus Christ, and it's a bit of a run-on, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Hebert writes, the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus links the human response with the divine provision. Listen again. The sprinkling of the blood of Jesus links the human response with the divine provision. I love that. There is a sense in which we're responding. But the provision is divine. The provision is from God, not something we mustered up. The double statement about obedience and sprinkling goes back to Exodus 24. I want to return to that and I want to read it. You can turn if you want or I'll read it. It's Exodus 24, verse 3 and following. A little bit of a long paragraph, but it ties together what Peter is teaching here. Exodus 24, verse 3. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord, and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. When you read something like that, do you, does it stop you in your tracks like it does me? Everything you said, we'll do. We'll do everything. And right away, you go, No, you won't. No, you won't. Your history says otherwise. And then we have to hold the mirror up and go, I'm just the same, right? I'm not any better. All the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as a peace offering to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and put it in basins. The other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance to all these words. 
So back to Sinai, they've heard it. They saw some ominous things. Do not forget the ten plagues they witnessed. Do not forget what brought them to that place. They saw signs and wonders that no one got to see, and they still didn't believe. Which is why I remind myself often, miracles don't satisfy. Miracles are wonderful things, but I always want another miracle. They never satisfies. We need another one. You've heard me say before, ask God not merely for a miracle, ask him for an immovable faith. Because if I have faith, no matter what my circumstance, he's writing people persecuted and suffering for their faith. The diaspora that are in trouble, and he's encouraging them. And he has this little inference back to this blood covenant. Now, of course, we're going to fast forward and see the new covenant in Christ. There's no more need for these sacrifices in the new covenant, for this reader was sealed in his blood. And Peter says that we obey him because we're sprinkled by his blood. In other words, because of the efficacious work of Christ's blood, the effect of Christ's blood, we get the chance, the choice, the ability to obey. And this is where I think faith and obedience are often misaligned. Uh, I think the words fit very well together. By faith we obey. We differentiate this point in time faith when you walked the aisle, prayed the prayer, trusted Christ. When you checked the box and said, I believe in Jesus. That was the faith that brought us to salvation. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But we forget faithful living. Faithful obedience. If I've had a transformational faith experience with God, then I should want to live faithfully. Years ago, I had a friend who was a professor at seminary. We were talking, we were arguing about, you know, arguing, that's what you do in seminary, about something, uh, waxing eloquent, a bunch of us. And he made the comment, he said, if you love God, you want to obey him. I thought, that's a whole lot easier to say than trying to align faith and obedience. If I love him, I want to do what he wants me to do. Didn't Jesus tell his disciples, if you love me, you will obey my commandments? If, if, uh, if a child loves a parent, and forget this pleasing and shame thing, we're all, we've drunk too much of the Kool-Aid. Not that it doesn't exist, but there's, there's a healthy part of pleasing your parents, right? I mean, maybe I'm wrong. I don't think so, but you know, I, I, there's a healthy part. I want to please my parents. They know more than I do. They've had more experience in life than I do. They, they're trying to help me navigate through life. They don't know everything, but, you know, pleasing mom and dad is not a bad thing, is it? Grandparents, you know, you love when your grandchildren please you, don't you? They do what you want. And, of course, then you do what? They want. You think that's too far of a stretch? That if you love God and obey him and please him, he's delighted to treat you as a child whom he loves? And blesses. You see, we got this thing so mechanically, I got to do and not do, as opposed to, He loves you. And if you love Him and obey Him, I say it puts you in a posture for God to bless, not guaranteeing it. That's prosperity theology, and that's a heresy. But by faithful obedience, it puts you in a posture for Him to bless. And you know, more times than not, He will. Because that's the kind of God he is. Remember years ago hearing a, a friend teach on the book of Job, and his lead question was, would you serve God for nothing? And he did a survey of the book of Job in one sermon, which is a fool's errand. But uh, he tried. And 
he, I, all, I, all I could think about was this question he asked, would you serve God for nothing? Would you serve God for nothing? And I'm taking notes because, you know, by the way, when someone teaches the Bible, taking notes is the way to deal with boredom. It's true. If you're bored, just write something else down. I mean, you know, your shopping list, whatever you got to do. Uh, but taking notes back there, listening, going, well, how do I do this? How do I obey him in this regard? How do I believe him in this regard? For us as, as believers to choose to obey, no matter our circumstance, I would say prosperity theology, although it's a heresy, there's some truth in it. Because if you obey him and you love him and you follow him, I think he will bless you. I think he will grant you good things. And sometimes those good things, as all parents know, are not precisely what the child wants. But when we get them, we understand what it means. Wow, I was asking for this and he gave me that. That's what I really wanted and needed and didn't know it. That's because we're childlike, right? Well, each phrase lends itself to a big study to summarize it, it's his work, it's his sanctification, it's his blood that gave us his relationship. You're a stranger, you're an exile, you're an alien. All politically incorrect words, they're biblical words. You don't belong here. You are an, you're an illegal resident. You're in a foreign culture that's not your home, yet you're identified with him. It's the Godward aspect, Ernest Best called it, and the earthly status that coalesces in this verse. There's the, what God is doing, but there's an earthly aspect here to how we live and how we respond. We're exiles in a world that we don't live. There's the irony. In ourselves, we're just ordinary, run-of-the-mill sinners. That's all we are. And yet he chose us. Well, the magnificent grace and peace result. Grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Keep in mind, even in their distressed situation. Grace and peace are two words that are very common in our New Testament. The idea is the grace of God is manifold. Grace is God's undeserved favor in the face of deserved wrath. Too often it's explained as God's undeserved favor. That's half a definition. Because you and I deserve God's wrath. And he was gracious to us. So grace is God's favor in the face of deserved wrath. Undeserved favor. And his peace is a peace which what? Surpasses comprehension. And some of us are old enough to know uh, in our Christian life, when you've got that knot all the time, when you're anxious all the time, when you're stressed all the time, when you're worried all the time, when you're what if all the time, when you're fearful all the time, that's not a piece that surpasses all comprehension. Many of us in this room have dealt with health issues. Some people really freak out. Some people are very, very confident. And they're, they're okay, God's in control. I'll get through this. No matter what happens, I'll get, it'll be okay. And I marvel at some people and how they process all that. But that's the result of understanding these three prepositional phrases, that it was God's work, God's sanctification, and God's, Christ's blood that gave us this gift. And so you ought to understand how much he loves you, and you ought to embrace, it's Okay. He's writing to an audience that's being persecuted for the gospel. Don't miss that as the preface. If you understand God's sovereign work in your life, you're okay, even though you're being persecuted. The lesson in this passage for me is, even though our desperate estate is something we might focus on, or maybe we don't focus on it enough, 
you can never overstate the grandeur of your salvation. We don't understand our sinful estate very well because we all tend to compare ourselves to others. And, and we do this. Maybe some of you don't, but I would say many of us do. We look at someone else who's struggling with life or making poor decisions, not following God, doesn't know God, and we have this sort of, you know, man, I'm not that way. And we forget that it was his work, not ours. The grandeur of your salvation and mine uh, should keep us a little more kingdom-minded. Um, I'm part of a group of about 40 people on one of these private Facebook pages. It's, um, it's called Johnny's Pain Pals. And Johnny Erickson Tata, who I've mentioned before, is a dear friend of Cindy's and mine. And um, she has this list she's accumulated of people that um, th- their lives compared to ours, uh, it, it, I, can't, I can't articulate what they deal with. One woman lives in South Africa. She's bedridden for years. She has a rented home. Her parents are in their 80s, and they try to care for her. The rented home that she lives in uh, and the room she lives in has no window. She's completely bedridden. She can work a little bit on a computer, and her lifeline is Facebook. And she reads voraciously off her computer screen, and she will post these things that will just lay you out and she's praying for other people who have far fewer problems in life. Uh, she prays for all of the pain pals, me included. If I post something, she'll write a long post about something I posted in about two seconds. And I, I know what she has to go through to type this out. Um, we're trying to help her. Uh, Johnny is. They're losing their home. And moving in South Africa is not like moving in the United States. And when your parents are elderly and she's completely dependent on care 24-7, and you read her post and I go, what am I complaining about? Cindy and I have a friend, probably Cindy's closest uh, friend for many years in Virginia who has multiple sclerosis named Barbara. And um, back when IM was just starting instant messaging, when I had uh, really bad back issues in D.C., um, we would IM instant message back and forth. And I'd, I'd be up all night because I couldn't sleep. And I would get on the thing in AOL, you know, I am. And I would say, are you awake? And she would say, yes, I'm awake. And I, I would joke. I'd say, I, I take my shoes off when I talk to Barbara on the computer. Because the stuff she says just immobilizes me. And I've told this story many times about she explains being in an episode with MS is like being in a dark tunnel with me, God, and pain. No one can help you. Not the drugs, not the clinical trials, nothing can help her. Me, God, in pain. And she never complains. And when you're around Barbara and you see the ministry she has, or around Johnny and see the ministry that she has with people, when Johnny was here and she's a quadriplegic 50 years in a wheelchair, and she's talking to people that have hangnail problems and she's dealing with respiratory issues and cancer and pressure sores and two women to get her ready every night and two women to get her ready every morning and a routine that would wear all of us out and she never complains. I bring this up to, <laughs> to overstate your salvation. We deserve nothing and you were elect, you were chosen by a sanctifying work by his good, kind favor, and by the blood and efficacy of Christ's sacrifice. 
You can't overstate your salvation. And yet, when we're complaining and whining, and we all do it. I do it. You get discouraged. You get upset. Things didn't work the way you thought they were. Your kids break your heart. The job, whatever it is, fill in the blank, the health. Um, talking to one of my physician friends in the back there this, this evening, and a friend of his had a freak accident on his farm and died at 66 years of age this week. Things are going to happen. Another cheery Michael Easley message. <laughs> this world is not our home. This world is not our home. So before you complain and whine and get discouraged or get anxious, go back to your salvation. Go back that he chose you for no good reason. That he loves you. And he knows the condition in which you live. And he's sanctifying you. He's transforming you into something you're not. Uh, An exile, a sojourner, a person who lives with chronic pain and disease who can still rejoice and minister to others, blows my mind. And that's who we should be on this planet. No matter what our conditions are, we should be people that are so engaged with who this Jesus is. You can never underestimate the depth of your sin, and you can never overestimate the height of your salvation. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters. 